I'm ready. Good. This time, I'm even recording already. Wow. So am I. Oh, excellent. So this is quality B-roll we're getting here <laughs> right now. We're, we're pros now. Since moving, our cats have been going everywhere. Like literally everywhere? Like uh, Well... No, I mean, still in in the house, but the the new layout of this new place we're in now mm. is and not as amenable to limiting where they can go as the old layout was. Oh, okay. And they are they, and also they've grown older, and they are extremely good at getting into places like the kitchen, mm. where we would rather they didn't. Right. So, and they're also extremely good at timing these things <laughs> at like. 2.30 in the morning or 5.30 in the morning. <laughs> Just make a god-awful racket in the kitchen in the middle of the night. Welcome to parenthood. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So what Actually, they, they get into food and stuff or they just... Oh. They, well, yeah, we're a little, we've had a couple of things because we did have some flowers in the kitchen. Hmm. And a lot of flowers are actually poisonous to cats. Oh, really? I, I didn't realize. But hmm. we had this house came with some hydrangeas in the garden and we had cut some of them, like they needed trimming anyway, so we had cut some of them and put them in the kitchen and they looked nice. But then, yeah, 5.30 in the morning, Fuyu runs into the kitchen and uh, and starts eating the hydrangeas hmm. like an idiot. <laughs> and uh, And then five minutes later, throwing them up. And they were still... They were still very much hydrangea-shaped when they came out. <laughs> oh, excellent. So, <laughs> so we figured we were probably safe. Like, <laughs> you could just cause, reuse Because, you know, if they, if they were too digested, that would mean he's ingested the poison, right? Oh, but okay. pretty much just, they came out the same way they went in, and so he seems fine, but... Uh, is that what you meant? I thought you meant, you know, it came out pretty much the same way as it went in. So, oh, we can just reuse this, pop it back into the pot, <laughs> and off you go. <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit soggy, but, you know... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right, yeah. We've got no, these we beautiful flowers all over the house, but they all smell a bit of cat sick. So. Yeah, fresh. <laughs> kind of that nice agricultural aroma, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, so that's that's my life. Very tired from, from being woken up by cats. And we've put up, uh, we've made, a, well, we, my wife, has made this sort of curtain-like thing to hang down blocking the stairs because we've got these stairs going up from the living mm. room up to the two bedrooms. Right. And they've got like a banister, which has just got these completely open. It's like got wooden columns, you know, and between them is totally open. So the cats can oh, easily okay. crawl through that. Mm. Um, but we don't really want them going upstairs. So she's she's contrived this sort of curtain-like thing, which is nailed to the wall above and below mm. and blocks off this banister. So that's our latest attempt. I'll see how that goes. I, I think you guys are just going to have to adapt. You know, I think when you're saying that, you know, you don't want them in the kitchen, you don't want them upstairs. Like, I, this is a, you're dealing with, you know, feline forces of nature. I don't think that you can yeah. really, this is, this is a, a wave that you can't stop. I don't <laughs> I'm, I'm inclined to agree, but I think we have to try so that we can say we've tried. <laughs> I you see. Know. That's a very uh, Japanese sentiment. <laughs> My <laughs> wife also says that as well. You know, you have to try so that you won't regret not trying. You know? Right, 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 exactly. The biggest worry with the stairs is that we wouldn't actually mind if if the stairs were wooden, but the stairs are carpeted. Right. And Natsu in particular has the habit of just trying to rip out the carpet, and we're just worried that when we move out of this place, it's a rented place. Right. And we're just going to ruin this carpet on the stairs and going to have to replace the whole thing, which would be quite expensive. So that's yeah. the main thing we're trying to avoid. But, I mean, you've got pets and you've got two of them. So, I mean, a certain degree of, you know, damage is probably going to have to be expected, I think. Yeah. Again, we we have to try so that we can say we've tried. I think that is a good yeah. good approach. <laughs> time, to, uh, time to start saving. Actually, um, speaking of Japan, mm. just... A day ago from when we are recording this was a, a seriously bad typhoon landing in West Japan where we were. There was, yeah. I'm I'm actually still subscribed to the, it's either the Hyogo or the Nishinomiya alert emails. Oh, yeah. And I was getting emails every five minutes. I must have got like 50 emails over the course of, of the last couple of days. Yeah, so yeah, just, for, bad. just for those uh, who are unaware, Japan obviously is famous for its earthquakes. 
However, uh, being in Northeast Asia, um, typhoons are also a serious problem. Mm. A typhoon is defined as an extremely large kind of circular-shaped storm, I guess you could call it. Yeah. Um, I, do you know what the difference, if any, is between hurricanes and typhoons? I've got yes. a feeling they might be the same thing and they're just in different places, but no, is that not true? No. As far as I know, um, a cyclone and a typhoon are the same thing. Right. But a cyclone is the southern hemisphere and a typhoon is the northern hemisphere, I think. Oh, okay. Okay. Because um, typhoon, yeah, typhoon actually, I don't know which Asian language it originally comes from, but it's the same in almost all of the Asian languages. For example, right, in uh, right. Chinese, it's taifung, and in Cantonese, it's taifung, and in Japanese, it's taifu. So, <laughs> right, right, so, right, right. So that's the, where the, the name comes it's, from. It's like tea. Tea is, there's only two words for tea in the entire world. Uh, all, the, all, all, the, all the words for tea are derived off two things they're either derived off cha or uh tea i think or something else okay there's an interesting fact about the word tea okay yeah so um a cyclone and a typhoon i believe that the difference between those and a hurricane is basically that the cyclones and typhoons are uh they come from the sea so they start over the sea mm. and they tend to be uh huge like much much larger Whereas a hurricane, as far as I'm aware, mm. is uh, smaller and actually is situated over land. Oh, is that the difference? I think so. I'm not confident of it, but I'm, I, I think that's the main difference. Because I do know that cyclones and typhoons are, are much larger than hurricanes, but the damage caused by them tends to be not so generally not so great uh, because by the time that they reach land... The general pattern is that a typhoon or a cyclone, when it when it reaches when it makes landfall, mm. it will dissipate over land, so it actually will reduce in power when it when it uh, makes landfall and, and goes over land. It becomes much mm. smaller and, and eventually mm. dissipates. Whereas a hurricane starts on the land, and that's the reason why a hurricane is often known to be to cause a whole lot more damage. And of course, there's a fourth one, which is a tornado. Right. And I think that a tornado might be a smaller and more powerful, smaller, powerful variant of the tornadoes are like small enough that that you can see them, right? They're like right spinning. Like there's that image of a tornado, which is like that sort of whirlpool-like image, but made of wind. Right? Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Back to Japan. The the typhoons generally, you'll remember, I'm sure, that uh, when you live in Japan. Uh, unlike earthquakes, you get pretty you know pretty advanced warning of a typhoon because they're massive, and the Bureau right. of Meteorology can see them coming. And they're coming literally over the ocean. Like <laughs> that's right. Generally, though, uh, what we used to find is that um, there'll be a whole lot of sort of drama about nothing. You know, it'll be generally a case that oh, there's a typhoon coming this afternoon, and you know maybe we should we go home early, or you know mm. or are the schools going to close, or what's going to happen, and everybody's all sort of. Uh, kind of a bit nervous and um generally the t- when the typhoon makes landfall unless you live on the coast or you live on a, any of right the, this is just it little- because this is one that, that my wife gets really annoyed with people for saying this sort of thing because like we lived or at least i lived in kyoto and we worked in kyoto and kyoto was picked as the capital of japan however many hundreds of years ago it was precisely because it sits in this valley it doesn't really get affected by typhoons. Mm. It doesn't really get many earthquakes. It's much more sort of isolated from all these natural disasters that affect the rest of Japan. That's right. why it was chosen as the capital in the first place. Mm. And and so, yeah, for me, I would see, I would get all these warnings and would have all this fuss and be dragging everything inside from you know, like the little pot of plants we had out outside uh, the office. Would bring them all inside and any chairs and tables and stuff. Uh, to be safe and then it was always just like and then like sometimes we'd have the day off work or whatever and most of the time it just ended up being like a bit windy in the morning and Mm. then and then mild mild breeze and then a lovely sunny day afterwards you know right and yeah but like every time you know we'd sort of display this sort of attitude my wife who is from 
Awajishima, which is a small island off the, it's not even on the coast, but it's off the coast of Kobe. Mm. I suppose it's quite a large island as far as Japanese islands go, but not one of the main ones. And uh, so they are much more prone to, to typhoons. They are also right. where the the huge earthquake happened as well, the, the epicenter right. of the, the, the large uh, Kobe earthquake in 97, right? Hmm, 95, 7, can't remember. Anyway, go ahead. So they've they've seen their share of natural disasters. And so so she's very much got this attitude of, well, you you shouldn't make light of typhoons. They're disasters. They kill people. They're a real problem. And uh, yeah, she's she doesn't have much patience with the likes of us who've never had to suffer from the the terrible effects of typhoons too much. Yeah, I I lived in um I lived a fair f- fair distance inland, uh kind of central east Hyogo prefecture mm. and worked in Osaka and uh Kyoto and Kobe uh and um Osaka that whole Osaka port, the Osaka Bay area is fairly well uh, protected by Shikoku Island and Awaji Island, which right. is where your wife is from. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically typhoons would hit the base south coast of Shikoku Island. Mm-hmm. They, they tended they tend to come up from the south, and uh, it will hit that uh, the south coastline of Shikoku Island, do a whole lot of damage there, and then dissipate by the time they come to Osaka. Right. So this time, yeah, it seems that the either it didn't dissipate or it was so huge that even in its dissipated form, it was causing a whole lot of havoc. And one, I think the most extreme, uh, I mean, of course, there are, uh, I think there were several several deaths uh, and the most extreme sort of um, uh, kind of actual construction physical damage uh, that happened was a ship that was moored in Osaka Bay mm. Uh, broke loose and actually floated into the bridge connecting oh, no. Osaka and Kansai Airport. Oh, no. That's serious. Yeah, Kansai Airport uh, is this artificial island that's built off the coast of South Osaka. And uh, it's connected by this long, straight bridge, uh, which has like, it's like a what was it, six-lane highway and two train lines running along it. Mm. And this massive um, freighter that was that was docked in uh, Osaka Bay came loose and smashed into the bridge, basically uh, destroying it, mm. which stranded some five thousand people on the actual Kansai Airport Island itself. Right. Of course, the island itself was actually um, uh, very badly flooded because it is quite low, obviously mm-hmm. being an airport, uh, and also. Um, Kansai Airport itself has its own problems with actually uh, structural integrity problems with it sinking. It's actually sinking. Yeah, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's another problem. But, I mean, that's uh, not related to this issue at the moment. So that the <laughs> a lot of Kansai Airport was flooded. So, yeah, I read in the news that uh, the, the Japanese airport authorities are predicting, I think it was 10 days before Kansai Airport will be operating again. <laughs> it's like operating at all or operating at full capacity uh operating at all but 10 days i mean that is incredibly short yeah if you think about the kind of you know work that has to be done that is amazing and i think uh you know that's like we've always said you know uh nobody absolutely nobody deals with natural disasters the way that the japanese people do yeah. i mean they are incredible yeah. and talk about hard work, resilience, and just sort of roll up your sleeves, you know, uh, get the job done kind of attitude. I mean, um, right. we've well, all experienced and, and the government support for it as well, right? Like, they, they, you know, they're, they're set up for it. As soon as it happens, the government will roll out support to, to resolve the problem, which is more than you can right. say for some governments around the world. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, um, fortunately, um, at this stage, uh, none of our friends, I mean, I think there's been quite a lot of damage, uh, mm-hmm. but everybody that, uh, that we know at least are, are all okay, mm-hmm. um, which is good, but, yeah. uh, yeah, Japan has had a rough six months, you know, they've had very large earthquakes and, uh, typhoons and floods and, you know, torrential rains and historic heat as well. Like yeah, the, the heat well, reached levels that were high enough that that itself was considered a natural disaster. Oh really? Yeah. Mm. 
So I uh, have a um, I have a few new interesting acquisitions, oh. Danny. What have you What have you bought? The first of which is a guitar. Oh, very good. So not not a bass guitar, a guitar guitar. Yes, I uh, I bought myself an electric guitar. I actually needed um, uh, a guitar for recording, mm-hmm. and it wasn't a spontaneous purchase. I actually been planning uh, to get a guitar for some time. Mm. And, uh, yep, finally pulled the plug. Oh, I think I may have seen you tweet about this. Was it yeah. a Fender Squire? It was. Strat? No, Telecaster. Ah, Telecaster. Oh, yeah, that was yeah. it. Of course it was, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, I have to tell you about this guitar. It's, uh, for, for, again, for those who are unaware, I think that there are, I mean, there are several classic designs of electric guitar, but the earliest of those classic designs is the Fender Telecaster. Mm. Um, and it's a very, very rudimentary, very simple design instrument. And it was the very first mass-produced um, electric guitar mm. back in 1952. 1952. Wow. And like a lot of Fender's designs, like um, you know the, the, Strat- the Telecaster and then the Stratocaster that came after it, and of course the bass guitar designs, the precision bass and the jazz bass, you know, these instruments arrived at a time when, um, you know, a lot of these modern genres of music, such as jazz and rock and roll, and, uh, you know, a lot of these were in very, very formative stages. And so a lot of the sounds that you associate with these styles of music comes from these instruments. Mm-hmm. And uh, for that reason, even today, you know, the Telecaster, despite being one of the very earliest electric guitar designs, you know, what is it? It's like uh, 70 years old now, which is really amazing. Yeah, wow, yeah. When you look at a Telecaster today and you compare it to a Telecaster in 1952, Mm. it's virtually the same. Mm. I mean, there's been very, very little that's changed about it. Mm. And that is amazing when you think think about what what tends to happen for for a product when it arrives – you know, it'll. If you think of the mobile phone, for example, you know, if you remember those early mobile phones, I mean, arguably that this is technology that's kind of on a different scale, of course. But um, right. early mobile phones are yeah. these big chunky things that you know you carry on a on a shoulder strap with this with this cord <laughs> and a huge <laughs> antenna, compared to a mobile phone now, which is this incredible tiny little slither of supercomputer, basically. Right. The Strangely, yeah, the the electro the electric guitar and the electric bass. I mean, obviously, the 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 electronics and the technology here is much more simple. To you know, you can't really compare it to something like a mobile phone. Mm-hmm. However, the fact that it looks and sounds and is built virtually identically to the way it was when it first came out mm-hmm. is just testimony to, I guess, the timing of the original instruments and also just the excellent design. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, I mean, with music, there is something to, like you said, it's it's a classic sound as well as a classic look. Mm. And, you know, new things have come out. It's not like electric guitars have stopped developing, right? Right. But the appeal of that original style still holds and people still want to emulate the people that played those instruments. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting that I, um, in a way, I have to. Fe- you have to feel for a company like the Fender Corporation because they have this legacy, mm. and people buy Fender instruments because they want that Fender, you know, that that classic Fender Fender legacy and that sound. Right. How, however, as a company, obviously, they need to, you know, be mindful of their commercial interests as well, mm. and so there is a pressure on them to to seem like they're moving in some direction and not just <laughs> churning up, you know, exactly the same Telecaster design year after year. Mm. And I think one of the areas where Fender has been very successful is refining the production process to the point where you can buy an excellent Telecaster instrument mm. for extremely low prices. Mm. And uh, that's kind of what... What's happened here? So I have uh, the Fender Squire Telecaster, mm. and it cost me three thousand one hundred crowns, which is about three hundred euros. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what that is in US dollars right now, but it's very I cheap. Don't mind, but 
Yeah, yeah. So yeah. to be to clarify, Squire is Fender's. Seems a bit harsh to call it a budget brand, but it's definitely their sort of lower tier uh, brand in the same way that Epiphone is for uh, Gibson. For Gibson, yeah. Yeah, no, it's okay to call it a budget brand because I think that's really the 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 intention of of the you know the Squire company. Basically, mm. the main difference is that uh, Squire instruments are manufactured in Asia. Mm. And Fender's instruments are manufactured in the USA or in Mexico. Mm. Uh, and uh, Squire's instruments are manufactured in uh, China and Indonesia. And uh, I think those are the, the main places where they manufacture in Asia. Mm. There's also Fender Japan, which is a kind of a different offshoot of Fender. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I got this guitar and uh, I, have to, I have to be honest – the workmanship on the aspects that can be made automatic mm-hmm. is excellent. So that means the actual woodworking, the the fretwork, the shape of the guitar, you know, how it, mm-hmm. how it fits together, how it feels in your hands, the weight of mm-hmm. the woods, the surfacing work like the, the lacquer, the uh, – what do you call it? The, mm-hmm. the paintwork, <laughs> essentially – um, also, the the components are all quite good. So the bridge and the um, uh, the tuning uh, tuning machines, uh, you know, the electronics, the pickups are nothing too exciting, but you know they can be replaced. Right. Um, the bit that is sadly, you know, you realise that okay, well, this is why it's such a cheap cheap mm. instrument. Are all the things that would basically require uh, some human adjustment. All right. So, yeah, when I got it, the uh, all the tuning machines at the top they're all loose. Mm. The actual the actual bolt on neck, the bolts that were holding the neck on were loose. <laughs> the bridge the bridge was all loose. Oh dear. The yeah the um uh, the pick the pick guard wasn't really properly screwed down. Mm. Um, so generally, when when they manufacture guitars, they'll set it up just roughly in the factory. Then they ship it, mm. and then usually a shop will kind of do a, a once over setup on the instruments that they bring in. Mm. But in the case of a cheaper instrument like a Squire, you know, there's so many of them that they often don't. Mm. And so the setup was was as it was from the factory, right. and it was shockingly right, right, right. bad. <laughs> so the the neck had you know absolutely. Uh, no tension in it at all, so it's kind of bowed mm. forwards, which meant for like a really, really high action. Mm. Uh, and it was the intonation was just ridiculous, and the 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 action on the bridge was, you know, basically like strings on stilts. <laughs> right, those all sound like things that that you can fix, though, which is like exactly. you know, because yeah, considering precisely. the difference in price between that and you know a Fender instrument, mm. you know, that seems like one perfectly reasonable route to buy the cheaper one and then just fix all those problems yourself or get or get someone you know professional to do the setup for you or whatever but yeah that's precisely right and so that's the that's exactly what happened in this case too so yeah I've about i've been playing bass for 20 years and i love setting up my bases so that they're just mm. perfect and uh, so i have you know a fair amount of experience with intonating instruments and setting action and getting neck relief right and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, basically, the first thing I did was take the strings off the fretboard, which is rosewood, was totally parched. So, I have some um, mm-hmm. lemon oil wipes uh, mm-hmm. to, to lubricate the, the fingerboard a bit and then um, mm-hmm. just tighten up all the screws and get everything tight and then, uh, yeah, intonate it properly and get the action just right in the next, the next mm-hmm. set. Uh, there was one thing on it that I couldn't fix was the nut. Mm-hmm. So the the nut is the small piece of um, uh, plastic, but also it can be bone or synthetic mm-hmm. material at the very top of the neck right. where the strings cross f- across off the fingerboard and down to the, the tuning mm-hmm. machines. So one string on the nut actually was not slotted. <laughs> so... So whoever had done this instrument had actually forgotten to slot one of the strings, which means that so it was the, just sitting on top of the nut without the little <laughs> on top of the nut, oh without the little sort of sort of groove to, for it to be going through. Oh so um, when that happens, it means that uh, you can't intonate the string properly because mm. when you because it sits too high, mm. when you pull down on the string, mm-hmm. it will actually cause the string to go overly sharp. Mm-hmm. So. That's a, a fix that uh, you need specif- specific tools mm-hmm. for and um, also you need experience and knowledge in how to slot it properly, the right angle to slot it at and also the, the, the depth. Um, so I took that back to the shop for them to do it and they 
they just laughed and apologized and, and you know, it's, it's no problem. You know, this is a, a cheap squire, so I didn't expect this much from right. it. But, so they did that. And now, other than the pickups, which, as I mentioned, are a little bit mediocre and I'll mm-hmm. probably replace them, mm-hmm. this thing just plays like a dream. I mean, it's oh, nice. so fun to play and I can't stop playing it. I'm just mm. playing it constantly. It feels great. You know, the neck is good and, the, the, the like I said, the body wood is nice and resonant and... Um, mm. Yeah, and of course, mm-hmm. a Telecaster, you mm-hmm. know, just a classic yeah. instrument. It's so versatile. Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Tele, actually. Mm. It took me a while to get into them for whatever reason. Like, when I first saw the Telecaster shape, and it is quite sort of bulky and blocky compared to the sort of flowing lines of the Stratocaster, the Telecaster looks kind yeah. of chunkier and older. Mm. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was really ugly, but it... it totally grew on me and now i I think i prefer it did i did i ever tell you about my first electric guitar no it is the weirdest thing i wish i could know the story behind this guitar i bought it secondhand from the y magazine which is just like a classified paper newspaper thing in in my local area right for like 65 pounds or something (laughs) nice my absolute first guitar and i still have it at my parents house and it it is an Epiphone mm. Stratocaster. Wow, that's unusual. With a Telecaster neck. <laughs> it's like the most Frankenstein guitar I've ever seen. It's, it's black with a black pit guard and just a white border around it. Mm. And then rosewood frets. Mm-hmm. And at the top, a black head, mm. which is in the shape of the, the Telecaster classic sort of thin telecaster head right except it's got epiphone written on it it's so weird is it actually an official epiphone i have no idea like i'd love to know what this guitar is because like it's the epiphone logo it is Mm. so if it's a fake it is trying it's not like epiphone or something it's not like one of those you know like they're, they're obviously trying to i mean but why would you fake that? Like, is that some weird attempt at avoiding sort of trademark infringement? It's like, well, we'll take the Epiphone trademark and we'll stick it on a fender shape body. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, I mean, I, it could be because, you know, it's neither a Telecaster nor a tra- Stratocaster. It's kind of a Frankenstein of the two. It could right. be that, you know, somebody took a Telecaster neck and put it onto a Stratocaster body and it didn't, it started out as two different guitars. But then why would it have the Epiphone logo on it? Like, there's so so much I don't understand about this guitar. <laughs> okay, so I, I'm looking at it right now. There, it does. Oh. It is an official thing. Oh. Um, it, yes, you're right. It, the, the body is identical to a Stratocaster. It looks like the pickup spacing might be a little bit more narrow, mm. which would affect the sound. The, the headstock is not exactly a Telecaster, but it's sort of obviously influenced by it. Mm. If you search on DuckDuckGo for Epiphone Strat Clone, mm. do an image search. Tell me if this is your guitar or not, because this fits your description. Yeah, actually, this uh, the, the very first one that's come up for me, which has the white border around the pickguard, that looks, the body looks identical. Mm. The, the headstock, I'd have to go, I haven't looked at this guitar for like 10 years, so I'd have to remind myself. It didn't say Epiphone by Gibson, though. It just said Epiphone. Yeah, these one, the images that I'm looking at, that's what they say. Oh, okay. I just brought one up which said Epiphone by Gibson. My memory of it is that it's identical to the Telecaster one, but I may just, at the time, have not known the difference, and then, as I've learned the difference, assumed that it was the same thing. Mm. Uh, so it may be that it is this slightly different shape. But I'll, I, I'm going to be going back to my parents' house in less than two weeks now so i can have a look yeah you should <laughs> what an unusual thing yeah like if you're epiphone why would you want to make a strat copy <laughs> I, I, i'm gonna have to keep reading uh reading up on some of these because i am i am so intrigued by what the story of this is and yeah. when i was playing this guitar it was not the case that i would instantly be able to find the answer on the internet because right. the internet was a lot smaller then but now, of course, it is. So, so mm. now this conversation has reminded me that I've always wanted to know this interesting fact about my guitar. That's interesting. Yeah, actually, um, Epiphone and Squire, despite being the you know so-called lower tier budget versions of um, 
uh, Gibson and Fender, respectively. Mm. They they do have a like a certain degree of nice uh, legacy about them too. Mm. I believe the Epiphone. I think John Lennon played an Epiphone at one stage. Oh, did he? Yeah, and uh, Squire has also uh, had some very famous uh, players mm. play Squire as well. And um, yeah, if you go onto YouTube, you'll find uh, you know loads of uh, really really consummate excellent bassists and guitarists who use squires and, and epiphones and it just goes to show you know if you if you a you know have the the skills and b if you know a little bit about how to set up your instrument mm-hmm. or you've taken it some to somebody who can do it for you mm-hmm. you know you can go a long way with uh with an epiphone or a squire despite it being the the budget option so to speak yeah yeah and i think they are i mean it's true the budget sort of has a negative connotation with it. But I think the the good brands' budget options are not just the cheaper, not as good version. They like, you know, the, the top brands will make their budget option have its own value in its own mm. right, right? Which is different from the, whatever the, the, the official non-budget option is for that brand. Yeah, and the, the other thing is that, um, uh, like I have to say, I remember Squires from like 20 years ago and they they were definitely not great. <laughs> so, you know, now it, it really is amazing that, you know, um, obviously the, the, the finish is, is poor and the, the setup is really bad. But um, like you said, almost everything that was wrong with this specific Squire Telecaster that I've got mm. are things that I could fix myself or that the shop could easily do for me. So the, all really the, the, the refinement here goes into the, the process of creating these things on a mass scale mm. in, in a country like Indonesia or China for such a low price. And yet, you know, you can, you can just imagine that over the, the years that Squire has been doing this, you know, the actual process of basically when you're designing this manufacturing process for this guitar, mm. how can we make it so that, you know, the result that comes out at the end Basically, regardless of the country where we're making it and the, the the prices that we're paying for the production of these instruments, how can we make this process foolproof so that it you know that we can guarantee a consistent high quality of result, regardless of where you're making it, mm. at what budget level you're making it? Basically, refining the manufacturing process to the point where you can get it so cheap and be a, a perfectly serviceable, workable instrument at the end of it. And I definitely feel that playing this because um, uh, I did obviously did you know a uh, fair amount of research before selecting a Squire Telecaster, but everything mm-hmm. that I read just indicated that you know really these days, compared to you know twenty years ago, the value that you get for what you pay for a Squire instrument is mm. just incredible, mm. and um, that's definitely been the case with mine. Oh, nice, yeah. Just to uh, top off this Epiphone Squire talk, have a look at this. This came up while I was looking for my guitar. <laughs> I just sent you the link. This Epiphone Goth Les Paul. <laughs> there's there's a part of me that really wants this. <laughs> it's quite nice actually. There's I see that there's some labels around that bottom knob. Let me see if so that's look like look at zoom in on that bottom knob. Look what it says. <laughs> I will read it out. It says GT Killpot trademark. Push down on the knob to kill, inverted quotes, the output. <laughs> I, I have no idea what that means, and it sounds extremely tacky. <laughs> oh, dear, dear. And there's a bit of a shame about this sort of uh, Celtic-looking cross on, on the headboard, but I do like the matte black finish on the body. I, I think it looks really good. And the Roman numeral 12 on the 12th threat. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Nice. <laughs> That's right. You know. I think there is, you know, I may have grown up and wear coloured clothing now, but I think there is a part of me that will always remain a bit of a goth. <laughs> <laughs> the Roman numeral 12 is there on the top. <laughs> in case you didn't know where the 12th fet was, here it is. And in, it's in Roman numerals, which as a goth, you know, you will be able to identify with immediately. Right. Yeah, that's quite good. I'm, um, yeah, I think I might, uh, um, change the pickups in my telecaster the the options um basically nowadays we have a lot of different options with pickups telecasters and stratocasters use what are called single coil pickups Mm -hmm. which is basically a single winding in a single direction 
Mm. Um, and single core pickups tend to produce a much more brighter, sort of gnarly, raw tone. Mm. But the negative side of a, of a, a single coil is that it also picks up interference and hums a lot, mm. especially at high gain. Right. Uh, so it's it's great for that sort of you know classic hard rock kind of sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're wanting to do anything specifically recording, then you're going to have to deal with a lot of that hum, which you're going to have to use like noise gates or you know fancy tricks to get rid of. Mm. The other option is humbucking pickups. Mm. which is uh, by a number of different techniques, you'll actually have part of the pickup which is wound the other way, which effectively cancels out the mm-hmm. the interference that's picked up. That's what the, the Les Paul has, right? Humbuckers. Yeah, exactly. And humbuckers will tend to be darker sounding. They're obviously much quieter mm. noise-wise. Uh, output is higher, I think, than single coils, but um, mm-hmm. they have a, a darker, f- almost full-bodied tone, so mm. a very dark, full sound. Mm. Yeah. And so that sort of metal, metal, distorted metal guitar sound mm-hmm. uh, tends to be, more often than not, tends to be from a, hum- a guitar with humbucking pickups, right, such as, right. you know, uh, any of the many, many varieties of, of guitars with humbuckers in them. Right. Les Paul, of co- obviously, being one of them. And, yeah, um, yeah so, because I bought this for recording, mm-hmm. and actually the, the, the song that I recorded with this uh, is actually kind of like a 90s post-pop, punk kind of disaster <laughs> i should i should send it to you you'll, you'll probably enjoy it oh. uh it's for a it's for a game prototype that we're making at the moment mm. yeah i'm actually thinking about maybe putting in some humbuckers or something into this too so oh nice do they humbuckers take more space than a single coil though right would you need to sort of expand the slot that the pickups go in or do they make thin humbuckers like that because i always think of them as being like double the width yeah actually uh the technology these days is really uh really nifty so Mm. there are there are two ways that i know of to make a noiseless uh a humbucking pickup in a small single coil space Mm -hmm. one way which you frequently see um it's often known as rails Mm. and that's basically where you'll have in the single the space of the thin single coil pickup Mm -hmm. you'll have two effectively rails mm. uh, so you've got two narrow long narrow pickups squashed into that singles coil space mm. okay so it looks like two parallel lines basically yeah i think i have seen that yeah, yeah. And the second way is what's called a stacked coil where you have the uh, reverse winding underneath mm. uh, so that way you can have uh, again with that s- small footprint you can you can have both coils wound one way and then the other way stacked mm. underneath it mm. uh which allows you to get the, the the same humbucking effect oh interesting yeah oh you've got me oh you've got me interested now because when i left the uk i didn't you know when i was going to japan i didn't want to take too much with me so i only brought my classical guitar with me which mm. has been great it is the guitar that i play most often and mm. i mostly play kind of either classical or a little bit of flamenco or a little bit of blues stuff which is all kind of an acoustic guitar of some variety is is enough and mm. the classical guitar has, has sort of served me well but i do miss my electric guitar <laughs> mm. and yeah. it would be nice I, every now and then i uh i toy with getting one the thing is it's kind of to, to start from nothing and do it you've got to you know you've got to choose a guitar and then you've got to choose an amp and then find space for the amp and you know can't really have it too loud these days uh. <laughs> well you know i mean there are there are other uh options as well um mm. uh can get apps you get um i think irig is a company that makes a, a jack that plugs into your phone so you plug mm. your guitar into your phone mm. and then you plug your headphones into your phone and basically it's a an amp simulation oh, right. that runs on your yeah. phone yeah um so that that's one potential option You've also got uh, obviously if you buy like a, a an audio interface with mm-hmm. a mic preamp on it, mm-hmm. uh, of which there are many many options that are very um, affordable. Mm-hmm. You can you know plug your uh, guitar into that and then use an amp simulation on your computer. Yeah. And the amp simulators are really good these days. I mean they're really yeah, really good. I suppose there's just nothing like turning on an amp and hearing yeah. hearing that hum and hearing the sort of the power. <laughs> so yeah, literally the power right the electricity <laughs> moving right. through the the circuit like uh, it's uh oh there's something about that 
I think um, we're in dangerous gear sedent territory here. It's called, it's called gas, gear <laughs> acquisition syndrome. <laughs> we always used to call it a gear sedent when you when you when you gear bought some gear yeah okay <laughs> oh dear i've had a gear accident oh no <laughs> uh, do you play electric with a pick or with your fingers with so i've always played electric with a pick and acoustic with my fingers mm. and that's that's part of the reason why i've always got along better with acoustic because i i play much better with my fingers i'm i think the way that i tend to play is a, a lot more balanced between the left and the right hand mm. so my left hand is not nearly as good as most rock or, or metal players mm. and i struggle a bit with the complicated fingering on the left hand doing like solos and, and stuff mm. but the right hand because i do a lot of picking i think that at least the fingers on my right hand are a little bit more developed and so i i struggle a little bit with like with a pick, partly because it puts more focus on the left hand, which isn't as strong, mm. and partly because I find that I'm, I struggle. I also find my, I'm less dexterous with a pick, like at mm. literally choosing the strings. With my fingers, I can find the strings very easily, but with a pick, I find it very difficult to jump from one string to another, right, and, and get the right string and and not hit any in the middle and and stuff like that. So I mean, right, it's just right. practice, but you know, I've always I've found that I naturally. Uh, gravitated towards playing finger style which meant that i ended up gravitating towards playing mostly classical styles yeah i um being because i'm primarily a bass player mm. i'm obviously much more comfortable playing your guitar with just fingers mm. well i shouldn't say obviously because that's obviously a lot of yeah. bass players pick but <laughs> yeah that's right there's there's um a fantastic uh uh some fantastic bass players who play with a pick of course but anyway i uh am much more comfortable using my fingers and playing electric guitar with fingers, mm. you know, there are a lot of really amazing guitarists that do that. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Mark Knopfler, mm -hmm. he's a very famous, of Dire Straits fame, he's a very mm -hmm. famous guitarist who plays with fingers. Also, Jeff Beck plays with fingers. Mm. Um, and there are many, many others who, uh, people who do, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's a different kind of style. You know, mm -hmm. there are things that you can do with a pick that are you, you can do with your fingers, but it, it's a little different. Mm -hmm. And obviously... Uh, vice versa as well right but right. one thing i might want to suggest there is that i think it's important to find the right pick mm -hmm. if if you're having trouble with sort of locating strings or um crossing strings or getting your pick caught or mm. dropping your pick even mm. i think finding the right plectrum the actual mm. uh make the mm -hmm. the thickness and the material mm. can actually help a lot in making you feel more confident mm. when you're when you're yeah. moving, which will make that it easier is true. to practice. Yeah, yeah. I definitely went through a few different plectrums when I was plectra. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <Not> when sure. <laughs> I when I was uh, playing playing electric more. Yeah, and it's it's fun. I mean, that's uh, you know they're all they're they're really really cheap, and you can find them in any music shop and. Mm. Uh, there's a whole variety of different sort of um, thicknesses and shapes and materials mm. to try. And, uh, yeah, it's good fun. Oh, oh I'm, I'm falling down a gear hole. I think we might have to might have to leave it this time. But, uh, yeah, if we're not careful, by next episode I'll have bought, like, $1,000 worth of equipment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I can... Uh, can wholeheartedly recommend uh, Fender Squile, though I would advise that you uh, either take it to a shop to have them look over it, or you know that you have some degree of experience in setting up a guitar. Mm. Did you know that uh, Gibson is in a fair amount of financial strife right now? Oh, are they? No, I haven't. I haven't. I'm, I'm actually really unplugged from uh, what's going on in in the music and gear world. I haven't been looking into any of that. So, what's going on with Gibson? Let's see. I'm just going to see if I can get the latest here. Maybe I should help them out by buying one of them at their guitars. Well, no, they uh, actually uh, filed for bankruptcy. Oh, it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> if only this had occurred to me earlier. <laughs> yeah, so basically this was May May the 2nd mm. of mm. 2018. Um, the Nashville-based Gibson Brands filed for bankruptcy protection. Mm-hmm. After years of financial, t I'm just reading from a news article, news article. Years of financial turmoil and a failed attempt at evolving into a musical lifestyle company. Mm. Uh, 
they have filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection, and they've struck a deal with the majority of its creditors that will allow the business to continue and its instrument manufacturing to carry on for the meantime. Oh, okay. So they're not. So I don't really know what bankruptcy protection means, but it sounds like it means you don't go bankrupt. Yes, I. Yeah, I, I really don't know either. But it, <laughs> suffice to say, suffice to say that they're they're not in a good place. Oh. I think that um, Gibson took on. I'm just having a quick breeze over this news article that explains what went wrong. Mm. They had a an aggressive strategy to try and create a lifestyle brand from Gibson. I don't, what does that even mean? Basically, uh, headphones, speakers, turntables, software, you know, just sort of all just different kinds of things, not just making guitars, basically. Right, okay. They took on a lot of debt in order to acquire other companies mm. that, that made these things that they wanted to incorporate into this lifestyle brand strategy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so basically, it's going to the, all a lot of the brands that they had purchased. They're going to shut down. Well, that sounds good because <laughs> all this lifestyle stuff sounds like nonsense to me. They ought to be getting back to making guitars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the that's the thing. I mean, it's it's. Um, I'm personally not a huge fan of of Gibson just because their bases suck. <laughs> no, they don't suck. I, I just don't like them very much. Yeah. But um, that you know, it's such an iconic iconic design and an iconic company mm. they've got a you know a number of um just classic guitar designs that mm. have equal status with fender in the history of, of the development of Absolutely. rock and roll yeah. you know the uh, the sg and the SG. les paul and the yeah. flying v the flying v i was just, and the explorer as well <laughs> yeah yeah so you i'm know. just looking i'm actually while you've been talking i've been looking at the uh the les paul uh well the, the gibson website some of the Les Pauls and SGs that are on offer. Mm. It, it's like I was saying earlier, you know, for these sort of legacy brands, it is really, really challenging. Like how mm. do you, from a financial point of view as a company, how do you show that you're moving forward right. and effectively you can just make the same instrument year after year and just keep selling it and people will buy it? Right. But, you know, how do you actually show that the company is growing and moving forward yeah. and being progressive when when you're in that situation and this is a problem unique to companies like Fender and Gibson who have these classic designs that people just endlessly they seem to want, want that one yeah I mean, it's sort of similar to to Rolex and classic watchmakers yes, like that as well exactly yeah. actually yeah when you were talking about um Fender versus Squire and Gibson versus Epiphone I was actually yeah. thinking of Rolex and Tudor yeah yeah exactly Tudor again is an example of a brand that that is different from Rolex and has merit in its in its own right. But I'm just looking at the um, the Gibson page, and on the screen right now, which isn't it, they've got this sort of sideways banner where you can browse to all their guitars, and I can't just they don't all fit on the screen. But just on the the number that will fit, I can see no less than seven. Les Pauls. Hmm. So Les Paul Junior Tribute DC 2019, Les Paul Studio Tribute 2019, Les Paul Studio 2019, Les Paul Classic 2019, Les Paul Traditional 2019, Les Paul Standard 2019, Les Paul High Performance 2019. Right. And then it goes on to the SGs. Like, which one <laughs> should I get? Do you buy? <laughs> like, there's there's so little to, obvious right. to differentiate these. Yeah. That I can sort of see the struggle that you're talking about. It it seems to me like they're trying a little bit too hard to have these diverse options mm. on a guitar that is <laughs> that are all extremely similar. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I mean Fender is is not that uh, dissimilar. Mm. Uh, Fender also, you know, for example, the Stratocaster. Mm. Over the years, they've they've tried to implement various little things to you know, uh, improve, or at least add value to, for example, the American-made Stratocaster. Right, or, or add variety, you know. Yeah, uh, so you know, you've got different sort of pickup configurations and um, at one stage they had this, one of the buttons, you could actually press the button in and it would change the pickup configuration from, uh, it will switch between parallel and series, which will give you a different mm. range of more tonal options. All right, I think that might be something like what the uh, the goth les paul's gt kill pot does 
<laughs> right. At the end of the day, you know, it's people want the Stratocaster and they want right. it. You know, um, in its they they want that legacy look and the legacy sound. Right. And uh, the company, uh, you know, it'd be it'd be really interesting if anybody out there listening to Station Thirteen, if any of our wonderful listeners happens to know. I don't know, like the CEO of Fender. He would be a, he would be a marvelous guest to have on to talk about this. Like, <laughs> how do you deal with this legacy, and how do you go forward creating the instruments that people want, and yet also showing your shareholders and the market that you mm. are progressive and that you are developing, and then you're moving in some mm. direction. It's a it's a tough challenge, isn't it? So, if anybody yeah. knows the the CEO of Fender, then just uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure he listens. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah, yeah. CEO Fender, jump on the Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Get in. Give us a toot. Right. Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll have you on the show. Good. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, I think you should buy an electric guitar, Danny. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I'm starting to think <laughs> feel the same way. <laughs> Look at all. I literally have the sort of. Gibson page and the Fender page open in two windows in front of me as you talk, and I'm struggling to pay attention to what you're saying. <laughs> That's going to be the, the the big question: is Are you going to go to the dark side, or are you going to keep true to the the, the one true way? Because we, you know, there you know, there can only be one. The, I don't know which is the the dark side and which is the one true way, given that I've only ever owned Epiphone. I've, I've never actually owned a Fender or a Squire. The Epi- okay. the first Epiphone I had looked like a Stratocaster, <laughs> right. but it was an Epiphone. And uh, I also had an Epiphone Les Paul as well. So I'm so I'm tempted to go to the dark side of Telecaster, I must say. I, I do like the old Telecaster. And it is... A, I always found the Les Paul to be a bit heavy. I like the shape of it and I like the look of it. It was a, it was mm. a real uh, Wayne's World, it will be mine moment. Like when I first went to university mm. and I moved to, to Oxford, uh, where I was at Oxford Brooks University, and there was this music shop there and literally like in my first week there I passed it and they had this this Les Paul in the window which had like this white perloid finish mm. it was very sparkly and I sort of looked in the window I was like it will be mine and then my first student loan came through and it was mine no and, really uh, and I was poor and uh, I just just finished paying that off last year so oh, really? <laughs> So the long story. Finally, my Epiphone Les Paul is paid for. Right. Wow. So how many guitars do you have? I don't know how many I have now uh, because I think I may have got rid of some. Oh, okay. I have certainly had a. I had my classical, which is the one I've carried around wherever I've gone. Hmm. Uh, my first, the f- the first first guitar I ever played was one that I borrowed from a friend that was broken hmm. and wouldn't stay in tune. Mm-hmm. And and I learned how to play on that. Mm. Like I just learned all the chords and learned all the shapes and became able to make the shapes and to play them. But they sounded bad because it was out of tune the whole time. Mm. But it meant when I finally paid to get my own guitar that was in tune, I already knew how to play it. Mm. And then I had this uh, red steel string acoustic, which I still have, mm. which I bought some pickups for. Uh, so that's so to turn it into a kind of electroacoustic thing. Mm. Uh, I d- didn't get the piezo pickups. I got the you know the electric ones that work mm-hmm. that work the same way as an electric guitar does. And I have a Hofner, oh wow, hollow body guitar, wow, which I I picked up at some boot sale or something. And I I really like that guitar, mm. but that is also set up quite badly. The fret the strings are extremely high off the fretboard, right, and extremely tight and uh, very painful to play like it's physically painful to play that guitar yeah um i should go and get it fixed i've got a feeling that the fretboard might be a little bit broken or not in very good condition so i'm not sure how fixable it is i think i might have gone to have it set up properly Hmm. uh you know by by a professional and they said they could only do so much without like breaking off the fretboard because it was already slightly creaking (laughs) Mm. right so but i have that that's that's nice um, and then I had this this Les Paul and the Epiphone Strat, which I mentioned. Right. And I think that's it. Mm. Yeah. That Hofner sounds interesting. I would uh, get that seen to sooner than later. I well, I'm not sure if there's any seeing to. I mean, I think it's. I think it, it is what it is. But 
the Hofner as well. It's just something. Do you do you name your guitars or your instruments at all? No, well, not really. I mean, I, I name them, but not with names of like people. I, of people, because that is quite a common thing to do, right? To like um, yeah. BB King's guitar is very famously called Lucille. Yeah. And I've I've named. I used to name my guitars. I I sort of fell out the habit, and I've now forgotten what the names of most of them were. Okay. But I do know that my classical guitar is called Michelle. Uh huh. And <laughs> the Hof, my Hofner <laughs> has always just been called the Hof. <laughs> that's what i've called it that's what all my friends have always called it i don't think we ever made an actual decision to call it this right but it is and for forever will remain the hoff yeah so <laughs> you uh you best watch out you may get a, like a cease and desist order from michael hasselhoff right right <laughs> no sorry david hasselhoff what am i saying not michael david, well yeah. michael's his name in uh, knight rider <laughs> is that right yeah that's right isn't it good enough yeah it's yeah it's, yeah, it's one of those yeah, david has not right. michael david, david hassel yeah nice <laughs> basically i have two bases i've been through mm. i've been through maybe six or seven and kind of arrived at these two i started in 92 or 93 mm-hmm. and then um my the base that's actually right behind me right now is a fender precision p base which is uh ash Ash body and maple fingerboard, so it's a very bright mm. sounding instrument. And I string mm. that with flat wound strings, which is uh, mm. the same kind of strings that you find on an upright bass. And it gives it a really sort of punchy, full sound. And that's that one I bought in Japan. It's a USA instrument, but I bought it in Japan in the year 2000. Mm. And um, it's been to, so it, st- it was made in the USA and then went to Japan and then sold to me and then played in Japan for a while and then back to Australia. And then back to Japan again, and then now here to Sweden, and that's really my main main base. And uh, I have to say, these instruments really do get better with time. Mm. So this one is twenty years, well, eighteen years old now, and uh, it just gets better and better. Like it's got a real sweet kind of tone, and it just is getting, you know, each time I play it, it makes me smile. It's just sort of, yeah, that that sounds really good. Mm. The other bass I have is a is a Ernie Ball Music Man Stingray, mm. which I got. Uh, this one is about ten years old, I think. And um, basically, when Leo Fender he he the bass guitar history with Leo Fender was he he created the precision bass first. Mm-hmm. It's called the precision bass because the upright bass players were needing to get louder and more portable mm-hmm. as drums became louder, as the bands became louder. The bass player couldn't keep up with uh, the upright bass, and so uh, um, Fender invented the uh, bass guitar, mm. uh, which could be played exactly the same as an upright bass, except it's in a guitar form factor, mm-hmm. and it's amplified, mm. and uh, it has frets, hence precision. Right. You play it with precision, right, right. so it's called the precision bass. Uh, then he made the jazz bass after that, uh, which is a, a two-pickup version. Mm. Then he left Fender and start, um, he worked for a company called Music Man mm. and created the first active instrument. So this is a bass guitar that takes a battery. Mm. So it has a passive yeah, it has a passive pickup, mm-hmm. but then it has a an active preamp, which is powered by a mm. nine volt battery. Mm. And um, the advantage okay. the advantage of that of yeah the advantage of that is that on the bass itself you have treble, mid and bass controls, like EQ controls. Mm. Uh, and being on the instrument itself, that's really, really useful for different kinds of situations. Oh, where Okay, so you can just adjust that in real time. Yeah, exactly. When you're on the stage and you need to go a bit more mellow, you can pull the treble down, or you need to mm. get a bit more brash, you can turn the bass and the treble up and the mid down, or, or you know things like that. Mm. And also mm. the other advantage of an active instrument is that you can do really long cable runs and not lose any top end off your signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have a really long cable... Um, with a passive instrument, then uh, it will actually dull the sound of the guitar or the bass. Mm. But when it's active, there's a lot more signal power going through there, which means that you don't get affected by the length of the cable so oh, much. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So anyway, this is the Music Man Stingray, which is uh, Fender's design for Music Man. Oh, interesting. Uh, which is equally iconic. If you know of uh, the classic Queen song, Another One Bites the Dust. Mm. Uh, that bass line is the sound of this instrument. Ah, I see. Yes, I can can 
that makes sense. Yeah. Now you've described it to me. <laughs> yeah. So I was just I didn't know that about the precision bass, you know, being called the precision bass because it was the first fretted bass guitar. And I'm just looking on the on the Fender website at a sort of ironic product they have, which is the Tony Franklin fretless precision bass. Yeah. They've, they've come <laughs> yeah. full circle. Yeah, actually, yeah. In the in the seventies, it was uh, the very. They made a fretless precision in the seventies. Was the first time mm. they did that. Mm. And there is one uh, other than Tony Franklin. There is one very famous player who did play the fretless precision for a while, and that is Sting. Oh right! Oh cool! Yeah, he played the fretless precision on a few of the Police songs. Mm. So it's uh, yeah, I've never never um, I've tried fretless before, but I'm just too used to all the things that you can do with frets mm. yeah. <laughs> to uh, enjoy fretless that much. So oh, Very nice. I so. uh, look forward to updates on uh, whether you decide to go Fender and whether you decide to get a Telecaster and whether you decide to mm. get a Squire or not or something a little bit more... Uh, yeah. So I'm mean, the world is the world is my oyster. I could go I could even go not Fender or Gibson. I can't remember what else there is now, but if <laughs> I'm gonna look into it, I may as well look into all the options. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah you should. Yeah, exciting. Uh so having sort of fixed up your new guitar, I gather you've been doing even more sort of DIY restoration type work. Yeah. So my previous bike that I had bought was sadly mm. stolen from the front of our house. I know. Oh yeah, you mentioned <laughs> that before. Yeah, that's that is so I'm I feel <laughs> this is the most ridiculous thing, right? And maybe even slightly racist, but I feel a little bit disappointed in Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just like if that happened in America, I'd be like, well, yeah, tough luck, you're in America now. But <laughs> like Sweden, come on, you can do better. <laughs> yeah. So um uh, my previous bike was stolen and uh, I'd been loaning a bike from a friend which was this old kind of junker mm. which I was very happy with because um uh you know there's no way anybody would ever want to steal that. Mm. But uh my friend uh said that you know if possible eventually he would like it back. So I found out that my landlord, her husband, mm. had this bike that he was wanting to throw away. So mm. I went to have a look at it and basically it is a I think they're called I think the 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 proper jargon term for this is a a messenger bike. Mm. So I th I think that's right. Basically they tend to be kind of like um road bikes like racer bikes. Mm -hmm. Uh very very thin wheels. They tend to be single speed. Mm -hmm. So no gears but a single single speed with a freewheel at the back. Mm. Uh, and they'll tend to have really kind of low, narrow, straight handlebars. Mm, okay. And they tend to be used by kind of bike couriers around the city because mm. they're incredibly light. They're really, really fast. And basically this bike was sort of like a, a some bike shop's cheap knockoff version of this kind of messenger bike. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with messenger bikes. I might have the term wrong. I think that's right because I know that they're often they're called that because they are often used by uh, bike couriers. Right. Anyway, uh, this guy <laughs> he he bought it. He rode it twice. He didn't like the thin wheels, mm -hmm. and then he left it outside for a year, <laughs> and, <laughs> and nobody stole it. <laughs> nobody, nobody. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the amazing. Uh, that's part. already something it's got going for it. Yeah. So it was in a serious state of disrepair, and that's why he wanted to um, to dispose of it. Mm. So there's like the frame is kind of a bit rusted, and everything was kind of all uh, stuck. So nothing moved basically. Oh right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I asked, well, if you're going to throw it away, can I have it? And they said, sure. You know, you'd be doing us mm. a favor by taking it. So okay, great. Mm. So I took it. And, um, yeah, so basically uh, I had a, a friend who runs a bike company mm -hmm. in um, Stockholm come and have a look at it and just tell me what needs to be done with mm. it. And, uh, yeah, the tires were deteriorated, so it needed new tires, new tubes. The the brake cables had all seized up, mm. and so they were all stuck, and so I needed new cables, and the brake levers were all rusted on the inside and wouldn't move, so I had to replace them. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, a few other bits and pieces here and there. And so my weekend was spent fixing up this bike. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, it, it rides really, really fast. <laughs> it's really fast. <laughs> the only thing oh, that, yeah. I, 
that I don't like about it. And I'd be, I would welcome some advice from anybody out there listening who is uh, experienced with road bikes. Mm-hmm. Is that the geometry is basically wrong for my body size? Mm. But okay. it was a it was a free bike, so you know right, I can't right. argue with that. Mm-hmm. But it's it's slightly small for my body, mm. and the handlebars are so low mm-hmm. that if I get my seat up high enough so that my legs are comfortable when I'm stre- when I'm lifting them up, and it's not like mm-hmm. you know having my cheese my my knees hit my chest when I'm riding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if the seat is high enough to prevent that then I'm leaning so far down mm-hmm. that it's, yeah, it's kind of uncomfortable on my groin. <laughs> I see. So, it, it, so I'd be, I'd work, I've kind of, for the moment, I've uh, angled the seat forward mm-hmm. to, for more space for the, the package. Does it feel almost like that sort of racing look when, you know, on yeah. racer bikes, they've got the sort of bullhorn handlebars and you lean right down to get the better aerodynamics and all that. Yes, it's exactly like that. Right. Um, and so, it, yeah, it's not uh, – maybe I'm not used to it. Or maybe I haven't angled the seat properly, but uh, it's not that comfortable. I'm having a look on uh, on DuckDuckGo's image search, and uh, all of these people do seem to be leaning down quite right. a way. Yeah. Uh, so it might be just a property of this style of bike. I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe I'm just not yeah. used to it. But if anybody out there who's experienced with um, road bikes, if you have any advice for – ways to make uh, a bike that's slightly small, Mm. ways to make that more comfortable, then uh, please let me know. (laughs)